You're listening to another episode of Tech Writer Voices. I'm your host, Tom Johnson, and today I'm talking with Mike Hughes, who is, he's got quite a, a good bio here. He's second vice president of the STC. He's got a PhD in instructional technology and a master's in technical and professional communication. Uh, he works for IBM as an internet security systems and user assistant architect. He's a regular columnist for UX Matters, User Experience Matters. And he's also a blogger. He's got a blog at user-assistance.blogspot.com. And his regular column um, deals with user assistance, putting help in context. And his most recent article is titled Straight Talk, Surviving Tough Times as a User Assistance Writer. And I read this article and I thought this is an extremely relevant topic, um, something that I really wanted to interview Mike about, and actually I've been reading his blog for quite a while, and I enjoy uh, his personality and his insights. I think he's extremely sharp. So, um, Mike, can you tell me, um, getting into this article, which is the focus of this topic, can you, focus of this podcast, can you tell me why is it more important now than ever to demonstrate our value in user assistance? I think it's more important now because we really are going to see the economy tighten in extraordinary ways. Uh, you know, I've listened to some of the executives at IBM as they're talking to us, and, and the things I'm reading is there's just no room for any waste anymore. Uh, the the economy is shrinking to such a state that if we're not really part of a solid value chain, uh, we're we're going to get cut. That simple, Tom. You wrote in your article that I can produce a manual that users won't read for $50,000, or I can produce a manual that users won't read for $5,000. Can you explain kind of what, what do you mean by that? At that time, Tom, this was uh, you know uh, about 15, 20 years ago, uh, we were doing the manuals because basically you had to say you had a manual in order for your product to be in the marketplace. That was sort of one of the marketing checkoffs. Do we have the code? Do we have a manual? Do we have a box? Uh, and because of the usability testing I was doing at that time, I realized that people were not really using the manual. They weren't reading it. So if its real value was just to be able to say, yes, we have one, and it's in the box, and when you open it, you go, oh, good, there's a manual, then realize that if that's all the value I was going to bring, then we could do that for much less money than what we were spending to try and really spend a lot of time to write a very complete, well-researched manual. How did you come across the realization that users weren't reading the manual? You mentioned documenting some kind of script software for call agents and, and some kind of realization there. Can you describe well, that? Sure. What, what was happening in a lot of the usability testing I was doing, whether it was on our documentation or products, but also just as a usability consultant working for a, you know, an independent lab, is we would start a problem off. We would start a session off and go, here's you know, your software. And by the way, here's the manual for this software. Uh, feel free to read the manual anytime you want. And people, by and large, would say things like, oh, I'm so glad there's a manual here. I really believe in manuals, blah, blah, blah. But when they got into the tasks we asked them to do and they got in trouble, they never opened the manual. So it's right there in front of them. They're in trouble. They're obviously floundering. They know they're floundering. And yet they would never go to the manual or in cases where we had help available. Once again, we'd say, hey, at any time during the task, you want to stop and, and look at the help file, feel free to do that. Once again, oh, that's great. I'm glad it's there. And I'd watch them get in trouble, and I'd watch them struggle, struggle, struggle. And I never saw them actually use the documentation when they were embroiled in a problem. 
Now, if you brought them in and said, we're testing the documentation today, and if you give them a information retrieval task, well, then they would. And that's one of the things, by the way, you have to be very careful when you read people's studies about usability and documentation. You really need to find out how do they test it. Did they test them by giving them a manual and saying, find information like this for me? Or did they test them by giving them a product and a problem and then seeing if they use the manual? So in my case this time, when we gave them a problem to solve with the product and we gave them documentation, they did not use the documentation when they got in trouble. That's actually really interesting to hear this qualification for doing usability with help because I've sometimes given users uh, a task and I specifically want to get them into the help, but but I definitely try to push them into the help where they naturally probably wouldn't go there. Um, I'm curious to know, what do you think is the reason that users resist help so much? Is it useless? I mean, was it inconvenient? What What are the reasons that they're not turning to it? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons, Tom. One of, one of it is, yes, in some cases we have you know spoiled well. We've poisoned it by, by writing help files that weren't useful, and people have gotten used to that as being, well, I'm not going to get my answer there. Uh, my deeper belief is, though, is that uh, as a culture, we separate working and learning. And if you even notice in your own corporate life, you know, if you're going to go to a training class, you, you say things like, well, I have to quit working now because I'm going to go to training. And at the end of a training class, what the instructor usually says, it's time to go back to work. And so when people are working in a software product and they're embroiled in the problem, that feels like they're working. For people to stop their task and say, well, let me go read, uh, doesn't feel like working to people. I mean, how often do you walk by people's cubes and they're sitting there reading a book? I mean, this is just not something that feels like work to us. And therefore, I think people are very reluctant to leave the task and, and to go and read the things. Plus, I, I just think people are engrossed in the task. They really want to solve the problem and, and, and they're in the user interface which is one of the reasons I'm really advocating as much as we can. We need to move the user assistance into the user interface. That's where they expect to find solutions. Uh, so the more we can make that less like an activity where you say, I must stop working on this problem now and go read the help, uh, I think the more likely we are that people are going to be actually looking at the user assistance. So are you advocating that all help should be context sensitive, that all help should have little links or buttons embedded on the screen where the users are encountering the problems? I wouldn't say all help, but I think that's our primary door. You know, in, in the group I'm working with right now, we've basically identified there's five different ways you can get to a help topic. You can get there through a table of contents. You can get there through a search. You can get there through an index. You can get there from a link from another topic, or you can get there by clicking the context-sensitive help. And we've chosen to make our primary user experience the context-sensitive help. That's, the, that's their front door into the help system. So we want to make sure that works. But, you know, it doesn't mean that you don't have to, to have other topics. It doesn't mean not to have the deeper reads. Uh, I think what it means, though, is make sure you've taken care of that user who is in a task first, because that is when most of the users need to help, and that's what they want. They need that little snippet of help, which is one of the things I say help needs to be a mile wide and 30 seconds deep, because you really need to cover all of your kind of application, you know, the, the different areas someone could get in trouble, but they're probably only going to want to stay there for about 30 seconds. If you haven't answered their question, they're out. Uh, it's perfectly okay, though, to link the deeper topics and to have more background material. For instance, I do security products, and we always argue that we really do need to have a Firewall 101 topic in there to take care of those users who really say, gosh, I'm still lost. So I think there's, there is a room to take care of those people. But uh, once again, emphasize that person who is embroiled in a task and say, I am stopped for some reason. 
Another um, facet of maybe why people aren't using help uh, I want that I want to get into is the value that they perceive in help. And in your article, you talk about contextual knowledge. Can you explain what do you mean by contextual knowledge and how can this help us increase the value of help? I think what I mean by contextual knowledge is knowledge about the problem domain, not about the product. In one of the other articles I wrote, I recall when I got my first aha moment on this, Tom, and it was a predictive dialer application. And there was a thing in there where you set the automatic recall time. And basically, if the dialer had gone out and tried to call somebody and their line was busy, you know, it gave you the opportunity to say, how long do you want the system to wait before they dial that line again? And I'd done extensive documentation about just about everything about it, what the default value was, the lowest allowable value, the highest value and all that. And when we actually got people in the lab, what they wanted to know was what's a good value. And what I had not told them were things like, why don't you start with five minutes? And the reason you start with five minutes is you're trying to collect money from this deadbeat. If the line's busy, somebody's at home, you're almost caught up with them, call them back in five minutes. And what I also didn't tell them was, you know, if that's too low a number, it's going to really hurt your line efficiency rate. So if you see your line utilization rates going down, you might want to make that number a little bigger. If that number's too big, it's going to hurt your recall time. So if you see your efficiencies are going down, make that number smaller. That was the information they really wanted from us is how to use our product to solve their business problem. They didn't need me telling them if you click the up arrow, the number gets bigger. If you click the down arrow, the number gets smaller. You know, all the typical things we, we, we load into help. So context, contextual help, in my mind, is how can we help the user solve the problem that they're trying to apply our product to? Let, let me give one more example on that. I had a, a lunch one time at a conference with the person who is the uh, at that time, was a communication manager for the people who do the QuickBooks, uh, you know, the home accounting software. And she said, you know, Mike, my, my problem isn't teaching people how to use QuickBooks. My problem is teaching carpenters how to be accountants. And that was the issue she was trying to address in her user assistance is, is really taking people who are not accountants by trade but were using their accounting software and trying to teach them how to, how to use it to manage their business books correctly. Another aspect of help that I think we sometimes get distracted by is documenting everything. And this is what actually caught my attention most in your article. You wrote, we cannot afford to write about everything. And this, this brings up a significant kind of point in the way we strategize our documentation. Um, should we not document everything related to the application's functionality? Um, should we cut out 50 pages just to keep the the help lighter i mean how do you how do you justify that that uh, minimalization of the help content yeah and, and i understand uh, i think this is the hardest thing for for technical communicators to come to grips with because i think we we feel very strongly that documentation should be complete it should be accurate it should be consistent and, and the completeness issue is once again going back to it needs to be 30 seconds deep and a mile wide we, we really have to document those things that we think users are going to be most likely to need. And I'll give you an example. I just wrote a report and sent it to a, a colleague uh, because I had trouble in uh, the, um, I'm trying not to name the product, in my email calendar client, uh, the product I use for that. And, and it requires me to update my password uh, every you know, couple of months. Now, I have updated my password 16 times, and I can never remember where in the product to do it. So I went to help. And had a just terrible experience. And uh, 
and, and document it. One of the problems was is it was very hard to find where to update the, the my password. You know, it was just it was not located in a good place in the product. But what I was coming across, Tom, was tons of information about you know, why passwords are important and what passwords do and their role of passwords and securing and all that. Well, here's a product that requires a password. Here's a product that tells me, Mike, update your password or I'm kicking you out. And it's a product that makes it hard to figure out where to do it. Once you get to the dialog box, Tom, for changing the password, it's the easiest darn thing in the world that says, hey, enter your old password, enter your new, retype it, you're golden. It has all the rules for what's a good password. So there's a case where they could really eliminate a lot of documentation that was telling me all about the history of passwords, if you would, and just tell me the one thing I need to know. If you need to change your password in this product, go here. So not only would that have saved them a lot of, you know, cyber pages, and that's labor. People have to write those cyber pages. It would have also made much better help for me. So there was a question. There was a case where actually completeness was hurting my user experience. Plus, it was costing them money to write it. So is this also what you mean when you say that help should be a mile wide and 30 seconds deep? Is that you? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you've got to document the password, but what do you have to document about the password? What? Why can't users figure out passwords? Well, they can't. They just can't figure out where to do it. Oh, well, document that. So what it requires, Tom, which gets real exciting, it really requires that you look at an application that you're documenting. You go to the particular page you're documenting, and the question we ask ourselves is, what's the most likely information gaps that's going to happen on this page that would make someone have to stop and ask for help? And what we try and do, uh, in another article I talk about this whole idea of task support clusters, is in a keystone concept, say, let's hit the most likely information gaps that might be causing someone trouble here. And typically, that's going to be around decisions we might be asking them to make that they really don't know the impact of the choices. We might be asking, you know, pick these three encryptions. You know, which one do you want to use? Well, you know, maybe they're saying, well, what's the difference between them? What's it going to cost me to do it this way or another way? Or we might be asking them to enter a parameter. We might be saying, okay, select what you want your heartbeat interval to be. You know, how often do you want to go back and check for updates? And, and the question was going to be, well, what's a good number? Uh, when would I want a bigger number? When would I want a smaller number? Going back to that predictive dialer example. So I think when we're talking about that 30 seconds deep, it requires some real careful analysis of that screen uh, to say, okay, what, what really needs to be documented. A mantra that uh, I use a lot when I'm working with people is don't squander your ignorance as a writer. Look at that screen. Whatever you can figure out in the first three minutes, the user can figure out in the first three minutes. Don't bother documenting it. That's actually really interesting. Okay. So, and I want to get more into this because I, sometimes our users aren't us, right? I mean, sometimes our users are, well, for in my example, the primary user base are secretaries. And, you know, they're good with Outlook. They're good with, with Word. But they get out of their comfort zone really easily. Whereas I think most technical writers, we're more tech savvy, or we should be. And so when you look at an application and you say, hmm, where would I get hung up on this? And you go for the, the hardest stuff. Um, do, we, do we do a disservice to those less technically proficient users who just want more of the basics? No, I don't think we do because, you know, the point is when, you, when we ask those questions, you really have to understand the user exactly what you're saying. And so the real question isn't like where, where would I get hung up? The real question is where would a secretary get hung up on this? And the things that I want to avoid when, when I get into documenting, let's say that it's a, it's a calendar program. And, and let's say that you can reschedule uh, repeating you know, instances. And the dropdown says every day, every week, every month. Well, there's no reason to document. Oh, if you click on this, you can document, you can, you know, uh, schedule every week, every day, every month. Because the user interface will tell them that. 
Uh, so things like that. So things that uh, have drop-down menus that the choices are very clear. Uh, things that, uh, you know, a button that says uh, re- refresh screen data. I mean, there's no need to go into a lot of that. Uh, I work in some groups that, that really think the very first screen you should give the user should be a description of every field on that screen and what it does. Well, I look at every field and I go, well, you know, most of them aren't hard. You know, they're going to understand what first name means. They're going to understand what, the, what should go in the last name field. They're going to understand what goes in the telephone number field. They might not understand what would make a good alias? So maybe part of this registration form asks for an alias. And we, what we really need to tell them there is, boy, that's what's going to show up in people's email client when they mouse over you, or, or things like that. So when, when I say the things that are obvious, I mean the things that would be obvious to your user, not necessarily to someone with a, a strong knowledge of the application. Uh, and, and you refer to this in your article as MooPops, right? Which is uh, moments of opportunity and points of pain. Is that kind of your the mindset that you're looking at when you're analyzing pages? That's what I'm looking at. I'm looking at, uh, you know, what, what's going to basically stop a person here and do we have moments of opportunity? And moments of opportunity can mean a lot of things. Are there opportunities to introduce uh, information? The, the example I use in the article, and I just had a chance to do this yesterday at work and it worked very nice, is uh, sometimes uh, you, you enter a query to get a, a list back and for some reason either there wasn't anything there or you misentered the query and you end up with an empty list. Well, that's a great moment of opportunity to take advantage of that space to say, you know, maybe you didn't enter your query correctly. Here are the rules. Syntax is important. You must type the and, stuff like that. So that would be a moment of opportunity that you could associate with a point of pain, the point of pain being someone has not entered uh, the query correctly. Other moments of opportunity is are there opportunities to move the, the, uh, the user now to deeper uh, adoption of your product? Uh, I've been involved in a couple of products, Tom, where the business model really depended on users using more and more features of it. For example, I worked for a bill pay company, electronic bill pay software, and they got a cha-ching every time someone pays a bill online. So if someone pays one bill a month online, let's say they make a quarter. If they pay 10 of their bills online, the company makes $2.50. So one of the things we were always trying to do with user assistance is there a moment of opportunity to move the person into paying more kinds of bills online, getting their bills electronically, uh, and so that's some, some really exciting opportunities uh, for the user assistance writer to start to contribute directly to revenue generation opportunities. Now, wh- when you do encounter a point of pain, uh, what's the best way to include help there? Should you put a little help button with a question mark? Should you just have a the same help button that you, that you do at the top of the screen? Or should you do something else? Uh, something else. I've found by watching a lot of usability testing, the question mark is virtually invisible. People don't click on it very often, uh, and it's not very helpful. What I have found, Tom, that's helpful is to put a link phrase like an FAQ. So if, if uh, for example, a person is trying to do something and, and you're, you're asking for their serial number, you'll see this done a lot. You're asking for their serial number. Instead of a question mark next to it, you'll see the link sometimes. Why do you need my serial number? Uh, our social security number. The example I used in my article was we had a, a funds transfer application, and if they had not yet qualified to a certain way, they could not transfer funds overnight. They'd have to wait three days. But we left the overnight radio button there just grayed out, and what we had next to it was a link that says, why can't I transfer overnight? Now, I've used that technique in, in a number of different applications where I've had an opportunity to watch users and it is really incredible how often they will take that link. But the secret is it has to be phrased as a question that mirrors their point of pain. 
how do you convince a designer to put a big long question link in there? I mean, every designer I've ever worked with, usually I have to just tell them that I need a help button in the first place. And then, you know, to, to clutter up the interface with even more text is usually like twisting their arm. Yeah, it is. And, and what you have to do is, uh, number one, not make it big and long. It's, you know, that's part of what we do as writers. How short can I get this? Uh, but still, you do have to fight for the real estate. And I'm having less and less problem with that as our, our, our designs are getting cleaner. There, there's more real estate I'm finding on a lot of things. And, and typically, it's not that hard to find some place to put a little link like that. But you also have to be judicious. And this is why, you know, you have to go in and say, I'm not going to do this for every field. I'm only going to do this on the points where I think my typical user is going to get stumped here. And so, so you have to kind of really, as you've pointed out, recognize that, you know, you've got to spend this dime real carefully with your developers because they have limited real estate. But for, I have found it's easier to get than, than not. Uh, as long as you don't ask for too many of these on a page, which you really don't want to have too many of them anyway because then they're going to become invisible to the user. Uh, if it's about a particular field, typically you can put it right under that field or right next to that field, and, and the space is there. You do a lot of user research. I'm wondering, um, can you write good help without talking first to users? I think you can because the reality is you don't always get a chance to talk to users. And this is why another thing I really push, and I've got another column about this in UX Matters, is starting to use use cases more. You know, sometimes we just forget to act like the user. We just forget to ask the question. We sort of get caught up in learning about the application and just feeling so darn glad we finally figured out what that button really does, and we start documenting. So I've really started going more to trying to outline the use cases first, the legitimate activities that we really think users do, and start to write a lot of my documentation around that. Now, granted, I could be wrong on those, and we've misguessed the user, but it's a lot safer to do that than to start to try and document an email client, for example, without asking the question, well, what do people do with emails? Okay, they send emails, they read emails, they're going to try and cancel emails. So once you start to, to, uh, to, to put those tasks together and then write your, your user assistance around those topics and not going in and looking at a screen and asking yourself, well, what can I say about this screen? It will help you make more user-centered documentation, even if you don't have an opportunity to do some fun stuff like uh, contextual inquiries and things like that. Mike, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on quick reference guides. And, and by this, I mean like one or two page brief summaries of how to use the most core features, core, how to do the most core tasks of an application. Yeah, I think they're great. I mean, we all grew up on Cliff Notes, you know, and uh, we, we understand the concept of, you know, I know there's a lot more to read about this thing, but can you tell me real quick what I need to know? Uh, and so I, I think those are great things to have. The, the challenge is getting them where the user can, can find them. I remember one time when I was working at a company called U-Labs, we did professional. It, it was a testing lab. Uh, what we found was happening is the quick start guides were being overproduced by marketing. And so people would open the box, and there would be the uh, CD or, or the diskette, rather, for the, the software. There'd be the user's guide. There'd be like eight marketing brochures and the quick start guide. Well, the first thing they would do would be take the, the disk and start to load it, maybe put the user manual in a desk drawer, and then they'd throw all the other stuff away because they knew it was just marketing crap. Uh, so what we had to really do was kind of uglyfy 
the quick start guide so that people realize that, oh, no, this is useful information. So uh, that's always a challenge is getting people to go to the quick start. I, I believe in them strongly. Mike, um, a couple of last questions here. Um, you know, UX Matters is a publication that I've been reading a little bit more lately, and I think it's an excellent publication. Um, can you tell users a little bit of what it's about who may have never heard of it? Sure, and UX Matters is an online uh, magazine that's uh, that's really aimed to bring the community of user experience uh, practitioners. And one thing I like about it, it's a pretty broad uh, group of contributors. So you're going to find people that are really information architects, uh, people like myself who are really help writers, uh, graphics people. Uh, they they have this cadre of people who contribute, and uh, we periodically, depending on who you are, what schedule you've signed up for, it, it's probably one of the quickest reads to see what are people talking about in the industry. You know, I'll look at it every time it comes out. And let's say when it comes out, there's three new columns. I, I read the blurb on, on all three and I might find one to read. Uh, or sometimes it'll be all three that I read in depth. And if, if you're looking for a way to keep up to the depth with the thinking that's going on, as opposed to the tools, the technologies, and all that. If you're really trying to find out what are people thinking about, what are the new philosophies, it's a it's a great place to, to read the leading-edge uh, thoughts going on. Actually, you brought up technology, which is another question I wanted to ask you. So in your article, you say that, that we're sometimes distracted by technology solutions, and we forget about really what matters, and that's the content. And one of the big technology distractions right now that could be argued uh, actually, without getting in, in, into anything specific, there's help authoring tools that people could get into. There's there's new XML standards, DITA, and things like that. Do you think that, that all of these uh, techie-type focuses are, are harmful to the value that we could put in documentation? Well, they're harmful only to the degree we allow them to become the new bright, shiny thing that get us distracted. Uh, for instance, I do a lot of work in DITA right now. And one of the things I liked about moving to DITA was I lost a lot of my bright shinies. And it really, uh, I couldn't do a lot of the things that if I were using some of the other tools because they just hadn't been developed for DITA yet. And it was kind of stuck to, well, what can we do with just the content? And, and that's sort of, I found it to be very refreshing. It's like, you know, when you, your life is surrounded with toys and glitzy things and you say, let's just simplify now. Let's get back to basics. So I, I think we need to quit worrying about it. Uh, and, and, you know, and say, really, I don't care what tool I use. I shouldn't use an awful lot of it. Because that's the other thing that hurts us. When I, I started working with a particular company, and I, oh, my goodness, if there was any technique that RoboHelp allowed you to use, this particular help writer, use them all. And, and the, the end result was I found the end result was just, you know, gosh, I'm confused. I don't know how to use the help system. You know, I've got these things. If I click on them, sometimes things expand. Sometimes I go places. This happens. That uh, the more we just say, forget about it, let's just, what's, what's the one good paragraph that will give them the information they need uh, to do their job? And then we start there and say, okay, what's, what's available to me technology-wise to put this paragraph? But yes, I do think we get hurt if we, if we overplay with the tools. Actually, that's really interesting um, I, because everything I read about data, people say, well, you know, it takes a long time to implement and you need a dedicated person to manage all your topics sometimes. So actually, you're saying that that the the switch to DITA makes people less focused on on technology because they're just focused on writing like the help content in a very specific structure, and they can't worry about adding JavaScript drop drop downs and and doing other kinds of little unnecessary tweaks. 
Exactly. Uh, that's true of the writer. If you're the person who has to actually implement it and say, okay, how are we going to use this to turn out PDFs and all that, then, then their life is a little harder. But for the writer, it really does simplify your life. And sometimes that's tough for writers, uh, some, if, especially if you're a writer who likes to visualize your output. Uh, moving to something like Ditta or anything that's just very content-based where you say, hey, don't worry about what it's going to look like. It's uh, just, you know, write the content. Uh, that That's a hard transition. And, and it was a, a bit of a hard transition for me as well. I'm one of these guys that, you know, I like to hit the render button every five seconds and see what it looks like. But what I found, it may be more productive. And it just kept my my focus back on what was important is, is what are the words that I've got to put together here that's going to fill this information gap. Uh, and and it, I found it very liberating, Tom. All right, Mike, we've been talking for a while. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you want to cover? I just want to give a shout out to your blog. I'm a a follower of yours, and I think you're doing some great things uh, in in providing vision for ourselves as a a society of professionals. Thank you for the contributions you're making, Tom. Hey, you're welcome, and and I appreciate you doing this podcast because I actually get a lot of feedback from people about podcasts, uh, and I think they they have more connection power than blog posts. Yeah. And sp- speaking of blogs, your blog, let me just repeat for the listeners, is user-assistance.blogspot.com. So, or you can just Google Mike Hughes blog and you'll find it. All right, Mike. Uh, thanks again for coming on to the show. Thank you, Tom.